The Verf, uh, no, I really never heard of it before. I kind of understood the concept, but and as I stretched the memory banks, never came across it. But I kind of figured out why as I learned more about it. I think there's just different applications it's probably best suited for that maybe I haven't encountered. Well, you don't. Yeah, save this for the podcast, Nick. We're we're in it now, man. It's the podcast. We're in it. Okay. Yeah, man. Yeah, you know, to me, now I'm really getting in the podcast, but VRF has always been like residential. That's all I think of. Still, kind of, but obviously not. So, or a a server room, a little one, data closet. (laughs) VRF for a data closet? Yeah. You mean like. Not not VRF technically, I guess it would be a um, split mini system. Split. That's yeah, just a mini split. To me, that's it's kind of the same, right? No. Oh no, yeah. I I, I different. I disagree because VRF is uh, basically taking the heat pump philosophy, whereas before you'd have water source heat pump and water circulates through the building and is used to recover heat from zones that are in cooling to to heat zones that are in heating now we've just done away with the water and you're doing it all directly with the refrigerant that was what i finally how i finally kind of understood what was going on here is i went back to those water source heat pumps which right or office buildings those areas where you had interior and external or exterior loads but then the same questions came up that i'm sure we'll get into you know like supplemental heat you know that sort of thing everything i'm thinking about with a water source heat pump dedicated outside air units heat recovery but yeah i think clayton's probably kind of got a flow to this i don't know we'll just see how it goes but with that being said i suppose i should do the intro so hey guys welcome to the better building systems podcast i'm your host clayton Barron. here with me today is nick taliska jim DePasquale, and mark sink today's discussion will be all about vrf systems so um you know, a lot of people, a lot of you listening probably already know what VRF stands for, but variable refrigerant flow. And as the name states, VRF systems vary the refrigerant flow to modulate cooling and heating in a space. Um, so there's different types of VRF from what I was researching. And before this podcast episode, I I think like Nick wasn't really, didn't know too much about it. So if you guys have anything to add to this, obviously jump in and tell me I'm wrong. But there are two, two different types of VRF where the heat recovery, which is a three-pipe system, and a heat pump, which is a two-pipe system. So maybe I will let one of the experts break down what the different types are. If you well, guys want on. to dive into that, what do you Question think? Question first, because yeah. is, is, is I'm one of the ones that I'm not really experienced with VRF hadn't really heard too much of it before definitely have not seen it in any of my projects but is a heat pump then technically is that considered vrf well i was see great question and when i was diving into this i also have a heat pump podcast thought right and then i was like is this is this too similar to do two different podcasts about because i don't know i'll let maybe jim or mark break that down but yeah to me they seem kind of no i think very similar pumps didn't we like two episodes ago no i think we talked about doing heat pumps but so look think specifically about the technology of a heat pump it uh heat pump by definition is not vrf but a, a vrf system can utilize a heat pump i mean there are plenty of heat pumps out there that are not vrf yeah, like constant, yeah. constant, your typical constant right. refrigerant flow. Sure. Yeah. yeah, I think, you know, when we're talking heat pump or uh, VRF, um, you know, a, yeah, heat pump has a technical definition. And then, then I guess there's like the industry standard, you know, uh, talk. And, you know, a VRF system, I would say, is typically just a, a, a type of, a multi-split heat pump right. and depending on that setup it's either a heat recovery type or just a heat pump only type where it's all simultaneous or it's all heating all the time or all cooling all the time um, when, when most people say heat pump in our industry they're either they're mostly talking about just a single um, like an air source heat pump like a unitary type heat pump or a water source heat pump that's the most common 
use of that term my experience in the industry even though there's many i mean a refrigerator is a heat pump right like there's different you could call different things heat pumps but uh i think when the most common use and how we'll be speaking today when you're talking about these types of hvac systems uh when i think heat pump i'm thinking like a unitary just you know small unitary something under 10 10 tons or less uh water source or air source single zone heat pump but but i'm gonna elaborate on that jim i mean sure. a, a refrigerator is a heat pump but i think in the terms we think about a heat pump uh the refrigeration cycle is reversible via a reversing valve not just Correct. a single direction like a your refrigerator for instance yep yeah, my, my thermodynamics professor might, if he's listening, he's going to be upset with the way I just defined a, a refrigerator as a heat pump. I was hoping to get away with that, but <laughs> Mark didn't waste any time. <laughs> it's almost well, there, I, though. I think the reversing valve is what sets apart the, the heat pump. That's all. That, yeah, that's a key component. Absolutely. Jim, you mentioned multi-split in there at one point in the terminology. Yeah, so... Um, all that is is um, when you have multiple indoor units linked to a single outdoor unit. So your, most of your split systems, you have one condensing unit. Well, it's an air conditioner. We sure technically a condensing unit outside and an evaporator inside. Uh, with heat pumps, I like to stick with outdoor and indoor since evaporator and condenser is always changing depending on whether we're in heating or cooling. Um, so in a multi-split heat pump you'd have one outdoor unit with multiple indoor units linked to it okay and that is not considered vrf because it's so so it it, it is it, it would be and, and here's where you know we get these definitions get a little goofy um most of the time those i think technically to count as vrf you know the v variable refrigerant flow we need inverter compressors um on those outdoor units to help with the bigger diversity that the outdoor unit will see with multiple indoor units on it. Um, and for other reasons that, so I, that it fault like the multi-split heat pump in my experience, I didn't used to see that advertised as VRF, you know, five plus years ago, it was just multi-split heat pump. Now I'm seeing those lumped in to just uh, heat pump VRF. Like that's like kind of the, the terminology. And then as I was saying earlier, like the big two groups of VRF, you have the heat pump VRF, which means your the, your whole system is either all in heating or all in cooling. And then there's the heat recovery VRF, which is the second group where you get that simultaneous heating and cooling. Each indoor unit could do heating or cooling regardless of what the other units are doing. And they could also recover heat from each other. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So question for you guys, and I should probably should know the answer to this, but when I was doing my research, like the technical VRF, that, that technology has been available for quite some time. Right. And from what I understand, maybe it's just becoming more prevalent in the States in the last what did, if you want to call it a few years or am I, am I completely off base on that? Great question. I read the same thing, Clayton, like kind of invented around you know, early eighties. Yeah. Something. Yeah. Yeah. That's what was in my mind. Okay, good. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it, it, they, I think like most things in our industry, it was big in Europe and, yep. and out of the country. Mm-hmm. And then it slowly started making its way here. In my, my experience, the, it's been more prevalent in warmer climates it's had a harder time with the, the colder climates there's been a lot of advances within the last decade to be able to take advantage of lower ambient heating so there's been a bigger push in your colder climates but yeah i think what you're what you are researching is generally what i what i've seen as well are we a colder climate that's a dumb question maybe but like i, I would say that's a dumb question no, well i mean like you know, our winters aren't that "quote unquote" cold. I, I suppose for the way the technology is developed now, it obviously has a lot of advantages in a in a location where you have those shoulder months, right? For yeah. energy efficiency, at least. I mean, I guess I'd put it this way: you know, the HA 
AHRI standard conditions for rating the COP, you know, the uh, effectiveness of these heat pumps is uh, for heating anyways, is a 47 degree outdoor air temperature. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we're, we're obviously cold for VRF. Yeah. And you know, if, if you look at the standard refrigerants and the standard compressors and all that, like you're, you're heating, if, if they just take a standard system, you know, your bare bones, essentially you're throwing a four-way valve and an accumulator and a split system air conditioner and calling it a heat pump. You know, those tend to drop off as soon as you start to, you know, get below freezing, below 30 degrees. Their mm-hmm. COP starts to drop off a cliff. Um, you basically have electric heat. Yeah, you run into a lot of issues after that. And, th- and most of those systems do have an auxiliary yeah. res- electric resistance heat. Um, so if you're in a really cold climate, in like a 5A or 4 or 5A, you know, northeast, you know, New York, Pennsylvania, um, you know, your, your bare bones, off-the-shelf, uh, old-school type heat pump, it probably isn't a good solution because you're going to be spending a tremendous amount of time in electric heat. Um, you know, that being said, there's... And kind of go back to your original question, Clayton. I'd consider, yeah, we're a cold climate. There's definitely much colder. Like if you go, uh, Canada, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that is kind of what my question was, you know, where does that, I think we're all, we're prefacing all this conversation with a standard internal heat gain of like a residence. You go to places where, or, or have a building or an area where you have a load that demands it and you're going to be in cooling below 47 or even down to, 35 or 40, uh, it still makes sense. I think you have to evaluate it on a case by case basis. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Good point. Good point. We did talk about data centers, I think quickly earlier, just about the applicability of it, but I'd like to explore that because that didn't seem to make a lot of sense to me from the, it seemed like one of the big benefits of this is that you're going to have heating and cooling happening at the same time. No. For a three, uh, three pipe one. Yeah, I mean, there are places where you have data centers conjoined with other areas that conceivably you could take that heat and go do something else with it. But if it's just a, you know, minimally occupied data center with only, you know, servers in it, I don't know if there might be more cost effective ways to provide your cooling. Okay, so back to this three pipe thing. Who can explain that? Nick, go. Yeah. Let's go back in the wayback machine and think uh-huh. about a two-pipe system versus a three-pipe system. All right, remember that. So now we have two-pipe. You have a summer-winter changeover. You change over the whole building at one time, and the heating or cooling medium uses a common pipe. So in September we change over to heating, but then in uh, late September we have a cooling day, and you have to make that call as the operations person do we you know switch back over to cooling and it's a whole nightmare well then a three pipe system you had simultaneous flow of hot and cold water but you would mix it on the return line so yeah. a common line comes back well this has basically taken the liquid uh, you know the cooling medium or heating medium of water out of the equation and now we have common refrigeration lines where we can either serve each area with either liquid compressed liquid for cool or high pressure liquid for cooling or hot gas for heating. That's my analogy. That's a pretty damn good analogy. I understand that. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a very smart control box inside or as part of that three pipe system that just determines all of that. Right. Right. That's right. Yeah. That's amazing to me, quite honestly, that, they can do all of that. Well, and I think that's the thing with this that was just causing me a little confusion was, you know, the, the elimination of that secondary fluid. Like Mark was saying, I kept on going back to this water source heat pump idea, uh, which is very similar. Right. Uh, just like you said, just using now just refrigerant, bypassing the extra stuff, which has its drawbacks too. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. So of the two, um, you know, I don't know a whole lot about costs for these. Is a three pipe system like much, much more expensive to get that added benefit of simultaneous heating and cooling? Depends. Um, yeah. I mean, I know it's an annoying response, but it's just the truth. It, it depends. Yeah. Um, 
on the configuration of the building. Yep. You know, if you're comparing it versus a water source heat pump, water source heat pump versus, you know, air, VRF, you know, a lot of that comes down to, you know, how easy is it if you don't already have boilers and chill, or uh, water towers set up, you know, assuming we are doing that type of water source heat pump versus VRF, it, just a lot goes in into uh, the, the cost of just what does your existing building look like and how easy is it to install these two different types of right. systems? Mm-hmm. And is it even possible, you know, one of the things with VRF is now you're, instead of having your refrigeration circuit isolated to your outdoor unit, it's now spread out across your whole building. So you have to keep batch rate 15 refrigerant safety standards in mind. You know, you got to be worried about asphyxiation potentials if there's a leak in the system and you're running piping or components in very small rooms or spaces. You always got to keep that in mind with these bigger VRF systems. There's a lot of other little quirks to look out for when you design VRF and you bring that amount of refrigerant inside the building. Okay, that's very interesting. But before that, so are you guys, I mean, when I was reading this and, and researching, I'm thinking the reason maybe I haven't seen a lot of this is they don't lend themselves well to retrofits, but am I wrong there? actually the in my experience the best one of the best uses for vrf is a retrofit talk to me okay then you know <laughs> i'm in the camp displacing like unitary units then right i mean let's start what what is the best app application for vrf i mean i'm thinking like the examples that came up were multifamily housing hotels you know 24-hour type of operations with disparate loads that it could be shifted between different spaces you know for me personally and i'm not even using it for the heat recovery benefit of it it's more so like when i'm in a 20 ton or less situation i'm doing a a renovation where i don't have much ceiling space you know and i really get the big advantage of vrf of just running relatively small refrigerant piping everywhere, mm. you know, that ease of installation, you know, electric only, that, that's where I really see its benefit. The, and we'll, I guess we'll get into this when we get to the energy efficiency part of it, because I am limited in the size of this. And when we get into the nuances of how these things actually work and how they recover heat, every time I've compared it to a VAV system or especially in the, you know, three through five, uh, climate zones where we have a lot of time with airside economizer it, mm. it just oh it always beats vrf in energy costs it, at least in what i've the buildings i've simulated and designed you know i've just never seen I, i'm not saying it's out there i've just in the specific buildings i've done and simulated the airside economizer it always comes out seems to be the big thing that just kind of Saving pushes grace. yeah yeah and that's you know, and, uh, I don't want to jump ahead to the whole energy thing, but, you know, it, it's still at the end of the day, if you're doing air source, it's a dry bulb heat rejection. And in the winter, in a colder climate, you know, it's a lot of energy to drop down and you really spin that compressor really high and your, your right. COPs drop big time once it gets really cold. So I'm just not seeing it, especially in the colder climates where we have a lot of uh, economizer time when we're doing free cooling so interesting interesting okay mm-hmm. so with that being said then I, we kind of we're we're breezing through this just just naturally flowing through the conversation but you know we had um discussion about pros and cons maybe do we want to dive into that a little bit more before we talk about the energy portion of it i think hopefully we covered pretty well how you know the different types of vrf two pipe versus three pipe function and Jim, you did a great job. You know, you you kind of hit a lot of the reasons why, if you were to choose VRF, why you would concealability and ease of insulation, kind of stuff like that. Do, do you want to? Do we want to do like a more? Here are the pros. Here are the cons of it. Or is it very situational based? So it's kind of tough to say that. I mean, like to me, some of the pros, like you, simplicity. Um, I don't know. I would consider very maintenance free, right? concealable for retrofit applications i had energy efficiency that's i'm sorry that's all like unitary equipment too though right 
Well, but I think there's one, there's another uh, facet to simplicity that if I look at it and say, okay, I put it in, pick a number, a eight zone unit or, you know, a 10 zone unit. Um, and I'm the O and M team. I have the option of, I'm going to put in all these mini splits or I'll put in, you know, whatever it is. So now I have eight or 10 compressors, all the disconnects, all the electrical, all the, everything associated with that, or I can, you know, this is in my mind, a hybrid central plant where yeah. I have a single compressor, single condensing unit, all everything in one place and a lot less invasive. And the only thing I have out in the space is a little dinky circulating fan and a coil, which, okay, that's a no brainer to do maintenance on as, as opposed to, Oh, I have to, you know, like I said, eight or 10 compressors out there yeah. that are, you know, going to be forever a maintenance headache. Yeah. I guess huh? the only thing I would add to that is add the branch selector boxes right. to the maintenance thing on the inside. And on the outside on bigger systems, once you get above 20 tons, it's not just one compressor. They start mod. It's kind of a modular thing where they just start piling more and more outdoor units together. Um, it is still like kind of, you could in a way think of it as one central it's, in a way, it's almost like a big air-cooled chiller where you're just plopping in more scroll compressors. I guess that's a way to think about it. But I still wouldn't put it in the camp of like having one 500-ton chiller, yeah. that type of centralization versus some of the bigger VRF systems where it just it's more of like a modular thing where they just put more and more outdoor units together and incorporate it as, as one outdoor unit. Where do you kind of draw the line of like, capacity for vrf you know you mentioned 20 tons is that where you'd kind of say okay if if i got more than 20 tons of load i, I need to th think maybe i go a different route or i mean that's just kind of my sweet spot when yeah. I'm, when i'm in this like light commercial or multifamily mm -hmm. area it, it's it's a big it's definitely one of the tools in my tool bag it's just when i when it starts to get bigger than that I just see for the projects I've been working on better solutions. You know, that's, I just feel like that's the really sweet spot mm -hmm. of when you're around that 20 ton and lower. It's just, to me, it has some of its strongest advantages. You know, there, there are systems up that are over 200 tons, but, you know, now you really have to be careful with your refrigerant, you know, management. Mm -hmm. Are you, if it's a heat recovery system and you're trying to justify energy savings, you know, at that size, because of the refrigerant restrictions, you typically have multiple refrigerant circuits and you can't, you're not getting full heat recovery. You're only getting heat recovery within each little circuit. So depending on how that's laid out, um, you're not getting a true heat recovery. It just, all these things start to happen with these bigger systems. Right. These and again, outdoor, I'm sorry, these, these outdoor units are, substantially bigger right well you just you're getting now we're getting into some of the cons is yeah you know get in order to size these things for a cold climate a lot of the times you're just oversizing the condensing unit like the outdoor unit the compressor and the the outdoor coil yeah a lot of that's kind of the what a lot of them do is to, to you know be able to pull that heat out of that really cold air. So you have an oversized outdoor unit with an oversized compressor that's going to be spinning a lot of times over a hundred percent speed in order to get its design heating output. And that's, you know, just one of the potential drawbacks of these types of systems, you know, in a, in a really cold climate. But that could be for a heat pump as well then technically. Yeah, that's just uh that's not limited to VRF. That's just that's any air source type of heating in a cold climate. Okay. You just ha you have to get a lot of lift. You know, you have to lift um, from whatever your temperature is, whether it's you know negative twenty degrees suction temperature up to over a hundred degrees or whatever you need to heat your your air up at your indoor unit. You know, you, you're going to have lifts of over well over a hundred degrees at times. So it's a lot of uh, you. You know, your, your basic, you know, refrigeration system isn't going to be able to handle that. That's why they have to beat these things up and oversize them. 
Okay, I didn't, I didn't mean to drift into cons too soon. So. No, maybe it is time for that. I was going to say, give me some more cons. I, I mean, well, what I, about like the, the pros have got to be like the efficiency part of it. How does that? I mean, I know it's a whole package when you're looking at put these in, especially retrofit versus new. It's a completely different type of analysis, but yeah, I mean, like when they're perfectly balanced and you have really good simultaneous heating and cooling. Um, and I'll, again, on smaller systems where you're guaranteed to actually have that going on, you know, they're, they're extremely efficient. You've taken away your, like compared to a water source heat pump, you don't have a water loop in the middle of it. You're doing direct heat exchange. So it, when you hit its sweet spot, they're extremely efficient. Um, I guess in my experience, it's hard to hit that sweet spot and have a perfectly balanced system. So a lot of times, if you don't have that really good balance of simultaneous heating and cooling, and you're spending a lot of time in, you know, pure heat or pure cooling, you're just, in many ways, just back to dry bulb heat pump heating and cooling, which in extreme climates isn't typically the most effective way. And you've kind of lost your ability to have a good 100% um, airside economizer with a lot of these systems. So... When, you know, com- like I said, and comparing it to chilled water VAV and hot water boiler, a uh, central plant on a bigger system on an energy, I just, in my experience, a well-designed central hydronic system with economizer typically pulls away from it. Um, not saying it's, that's just my experience in every study I've seen on this. You know, I, I've only seen studies that compare, like when they'll say VRF is like 30 to 50% energy savings. Uh, I've never, and I'm not saying it's not out there. I've just never seen like a actual, like a good study that proves it. I've only seen studies that compare it to like a DX rooftop unit with electric reheat. And I'm like, could you get yeah. a better system to compare this against? <laughs> yeah, that's not a, a super efficient system, yeah. right? Yeah. When you go back, the same arguments were used to compare water source heat pumps to, you know, rooftop units and uh, standard heating and cooling. Mm-hmm. So the, the the arguments remain the same. The technology's gotten better, but it all goes back to exactly what you said. Do you have a good fit of the simultaneous heating and cooling loads that will yep. drive the efficiency up? I mean, same arguments, different technology. You, you always have to go back to the marginal internal rate of return does, uh, you know, when you divide the present value of the increased cost by the present value of the increased avoidance and by cost, I mean, not just the first cost, but the, any additional O&M costs going forward, that'll just tell you if it works. And uh, to be able to do that, you have to have a good model, good simulation, good understanding of what the break even temperature is and what the internal loads are. So you can determine, do I have a good fit? Not just, you know, you throw, put a swag on it and oh look, it's a wonderful project, but you have to really do the work up front to get to the present value of the cost and the present value of the avoidance. No, great points. And you guys would say this is a pretty mature technology at this point, right? I mean, just part of so. the, the pricing impacts and everything. So when you're looking at these things, it's not some kind of, I don't know, volatility with this right. is only been on the market for 10 years. So the pricing is still being reflected. Well, everything's volatile these days, but I guess. Boy, Jim. <laughs> Had to no, say I, it. Yeah. I mean, no, I would say it's no different than any other typical. It's a typical system nowadays for me. It's very, it's pushed by the manufacturers. It's common in a lot of renovations you know this is very common i i see it a lot so and, and when you say you see it a lot it's like like light commercial residential yeah. multifamily like commercial yeah multifamily um some high rises mm-hmm. to take advantage of it but I've, I've never seen it i've never seen anything over like 200 tons you know mm-hmm. at that it just doesn't really compete it can't compete with the really big central plants yep or rooftop units at that point, things like that. And obviously the maintenance considerations. I think I would know one if I saw one on the outside, like an outside unit. And I'd probably be able to say, oh, that looks different. Yeah, it's just going to look like a big condensing unit. Yeah. I'm sorry. If I'm standing in a room, right, and I see something in the ceiling that I would typically think is maybe just a mini split system or something, 
would I know it that I'm looking at VRF from looking at the inside unit? You know, you would know it. Just occupant. Yeah, a lot of them are the same. Like you could have your like the, the wall mounted, like you're tip you're used to seeing with your mini splits. You could have ceiling cassettes. Um, yep. You even have okay. indoor ducted fan coils, concealed fan coils. So a lot of those are very similar, you know, across you know from VRF to just split systems. Interesting. I think they're they're nice. You know, I mean, you put a one that goes into a ceiling tile. You you really don't notice that it's there. They're quiet, obviously. Um, well, Nick just brought up. A, I, I got to throw a pro because I, I feel like I've been hammering VRF, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I definitely see a lot of you know. I don't, I don't want to say faults, but thing like drawbacks with certain situations. But Nick, you just brought up like a five ton application. Let's let's say we have like a, I don't know, like a uh, three thousand square foot small tenant commercial space, and they have a small conference room, a few exterior offices, a couple interior spaces. You know, for me to put a five or a ten ton rooftop unit in there. Um, if it's a single zone, your bare bones system, I'm going to have zoning issues. I have exterior exposures. I have conference rooms, interior. It's just mm-hmm. someone's always going to be angry. We know that. Yeah. So I'd have to step it up to a multi-zone. If I wanted to stick with a rooftop. Now I need probably a VAB system to break out the zones. And now it starts to get expensive. Like now it's probably not worth bringing in hot water for hot water to eat reheat so now i'm probably looking at electric reheat and now i'm already starting to eliminate this option to where this is where i'm getting into the sweet spot and i said earlier i'm not necessarily looking for energy efficiency but the zoning the ease of zoning these systems and the ease of installation you know to throw in a vrf system and in that type of building is a really good in my opinion a really good application for it so simplicity that uh pro is that still I mean, is that legitimate comparing it to what you would put in, you know, as an alternate? Watching it get installed, I would consider it, yeah. I mean, you can really slap slap those in pretty quick if you know what you're doing. I think it, uh, the answer, again, is simplicity, you know, the, it's the right simple solution. I say yes conditionally because when I, I think in my experience is when you get to the control side, you find the controls tend to be um, still parochial slash proprietary. Yep. Even the backnet and Modbus communications are tend not to be well documented, or uh, their documentation doesn't follow the updates to software that may be in the units, and it's just not easy. Not that that's, I mean, it just takes more work than it should take. I think in my estimation, a lot of times to do an integration and when you do an integration, you find a lot more read only data than, you know, even simple things like adjusting set points or are are not as simple as they should be. But, you know, I think that comes from a lot of uh, big manufacturers thinking that we're going to put this in, it'll stand alone, work just fine and you don't need an integration. Well, that's sometimes true but not always true yeah mark i think that's one of the bigger drawbacks we haven't mentioned yet is the proprietary controls on these things right it's not like you know if i have an open protocol bms uh well-designed bms where i could swap out you know manufacturer a's vav box with manufacturer b same with you know control valves Right. There's no issue as long as we're all following whether it's Backnut, Modbus, Lonver, whatever that open protocol. Whatever it is, is right. right? Yep. But VRF, I can't swap in a different manufacturer's indoor unit, right? Because now the controls are all proprietary, and you know that's on the proprietary network. That's kind of something to keep in mind. Um, you're typically married to the contractor or manufacturer for the life cycle of that system. You can't. Yep. You know, if there's any disagreements or you want to go a different way, you're kind of stuck with, with them, um, for better or worse, through the life cycle of that system. Well, uh, even for service. Yep. Okay, that's that's a real interesting point. Okay. Uh, as far as other pros I could think of, I mean, the removal of the secondary fluid, obviously, and these are 
you know, all electric solutions, which seems to be what the world is driving towards for some reason. I was going to save that for the end. I'm sorry. <laughs> save it for the end, Glayden. <laughs> no, but you're right. Um, what else you got, Nick, for pros? Give me the... I mean, everything else I think we, we cover, yeah. but then a lot of them, you know, that I read about and reason, you know, individual temperature control. Well, it's not the only solution that gives you that, you know, zoning. Well, it's not the only solution that gives you that either. Uh, yeah, but I guess nothing really is that, you know, there's nothing yeah. in our industry. There's not just like, oh, you got to put this in there. Yep. Well, there's lots of solutions to give you that. They just, it, everything's a trade-off. I mean, you can put in constant volume reheat systems and get, good ventilation and great control and you know all that but you pay the price on the energy side well unless you're not really paying a lot for electricity well that's right i mean so i mean it's, it's, it's everything or, goes into this the the you know yeah you're exactly right big factor yeah put in your own cogen plant and then you can get you know waste heat and electricity and you're good to go that sounds like the best idea yeah with an absorption <laughs> Not even thinking about it. <laughs> so some cons that maybe it's just something you, we breeze over quickly or not, but, you know, obviously we've covered a fair amount of cons, but like on, on a specific standpoint, obviously VRF ventilation is a challenge, maybe not a challenge, but something you have to consider, right? And um, condensation management, which, you know, we talk about simplicity. I just hang your cassette and run your refrigerant pipes to the roof. Well, you still got to get some duct work to it and you still got to pipe some PVC to a drain, which yes. makes it a little bit more challenging from an insulation standpoint, especially if it's an existing building. So I don't know yeah. if anybody wants to dive into that a little bit or is that, or is that where we well, just leave I, it? I look at that as, a, as one of the biggest drawbacks because anytime you're doing uh, local dehumidification and you have uh, condensate to manage in my mind that there is some risk because if there's anything that takes ongoing maintenance it's remote condensate pumps condensate traps all those good things that have a tendency to deteriorate over time and or cause a leak cause the unit to shut down or grow mold the so, things that like you know are tucked away far far yeah. you know in a ceiling out of nobody... sight out of mind yep, yep and then you find out oh now we're flooding water or something something yeah and yeah. the consequences depending on the application can be large in that case you know mm -hmm. well yeah family housing hotels things like oh, that yeah 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 this comes down to you know it's more of a decentralized versus centralized system um, to where, you know, this, this is a decentralized system to where you have a lot of maintenance out now in your building at multiple locations. So, you know, now, like Mark said, you got condensate removal you have to worry about. And those things tend to always want to clog up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it, you have air filters at every indoor unit. You know, there's a lot of that maintenance out, out in the, throughout the building, Whereas if you had a central air handler or a central plant, it's more centralized. So it's definitely something to take into consideration. And we really didn't talk much about ventilation, but you know, we should mention these VRF systems, unlike just throwing in a rooftop unit that'll throw, you know, that'll provide your ventilation, you know, through the outdoor air damper and economizer, the VRF systems require uh either a DOAS dedicated outdoor air system or ERV type, you know, energy recovery ventilator. And that's where, again, you know, I like my sweet spot of around 20 tons, but if you get really small or if you're, you know, if you're in a really small system, we have really small ventilation loads. You, you can, uh, this is a little warning out there for other engineers, be careful how you integrate the ventilation system. It could be tricky. I could just put it at that. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah, so those are the big concerns I think I would have going back to the, the condensate. And then the other one being, which I really didn't think about, was the, the refrigerant, like in the space. And then the additional concerns, like, so I guess, what are the additional concerns that you'd have to uh, take? Or is it just monitoring? Or is that even required? You, you want to make sure you don't get into a position where it is required. Because mm -hmm. then it's, but yeah, it could be required. ASHRAE 15 is typically adopted by most jurisdictions which sets the uh 
thresholds. And it's also in the, there's some stuff in the mechanical code on this as well. But typically it's all ASHRAE 15. They'll have tables in there of all the different refrigerants that are commonly used in HVAC and what's allowable, how much refrigerant in a single circuit can run through a certain volume of space. And then, you know, there's a lot of little exceptions and nuances in there. Like, is that space? Does it have ductwork open to other rooms? And there's a lot of little things in there to figure out. But essentially, you want to make sure that you're not in a situation where you're running refrigerant or uh, having an evaporator coil inside a space that is smaller than what's listed or permitted by ASHRAE 15, because then you, you know, run into monitoring um, issues and it just makes it a lot more costly and complicates things. You know, you okay, might, if, so. if you do have, say you have a small room, maybe you put a ducted fan coil outside the room and duct it in, you know, maybe you put it in a corridor that's bigger and duct it into a small office, little things like that to work around some of those situations. Do you often, oh, I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say like, you know, and this is maybe silly to go down this road, but you know, common, common insulation, you know, normal size rooms, whatever you want to call it. Is this like something you really, really have to be cautious about? Or in general, is it pretty, you don't really hit those limits? No, you absolutely have to keep that in mind. I mean, if you have, uh, you know, a small office, like a, I don't know, 10 by 10, 12 by 12, mm-hmm. you know, 100 or 150 square foot office, you know, and you have a 20 plus ton system, now, now you're in the, the range where you really need to start taking a look at, um, you know, what, what, what those spaces, the space volumes are. You know, if you have a little hotel room or a little apartment and you're doing ductless type systems, you know, what are those volumes? The bed, you know, you have a unit in the bedroom, however you're doing it, you absolutely need to pay attention to that. So, yeah, I'd say it's very common to where you're close enough to that limit, typically, where you you definitely have to keep it in mind and do the calcs to make sure you're not going over any um, thresholds that would Make you have to do some other monitoring or anything like that. Yeah, I was yep. just curious, you know, like say you got your 10 by 10 office and I don't know what size, you know, what your load in there would be, but it's dinky, right? So you got a half a ton. Like I just didn't know if like, okay, your, your standard half a ton VRF head generally. Uh, yeah, no, like your, your typical, well, it's not about the size of the head in yeah. this case. It's about the total amount of refrigerant in that circuit. Right, so, right, right. You know, so I could have a half ton head in there, but if it's connected to a 20 ton BRF circuit, that whole refrigeration system you have to consider all of that into yep. that small space. Yeah. yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Now, all that being said, I'm not aware of any documented, you know, deaths or serious incidents from a VRF system. The last I looked, I just wasn't able to find any. Um, I know that was one of the arguments. It was one of the arguments in the industry, the manufacturers and the, I believe are arguing with some of the, the code officials about, you know, how a lot of those standards may have been developed before VRF became very prominent, but you know, it's still a legitimate risk. Um, it's definitely code in the majority of jurisdictions in the country if not all of them. So we still have to do it, even though some people might say it's, uh, you know, kind of overstated, but. Hmm. Hmm. Is right. (laughs) No, something to consider. I mean, that falls into the con section of it for sure. So I was just curious, like I said, how often, but I see what you're saying regarding the, you got to be conscious of the whole system volume compared to the, you know, the space, not just, oh yeah, I'm putting a, this is the size of the capacity of the one VRF head feeding the space. It's the rest of the system that could leak into there if there was a leak. So has anyone explored the link I added to this outline? Of course, Clayton. What did you think? It's a brilliant abstract. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to open it right now just so I have it in front of me. I found it interesting. It seemed quite thorough. Well, it did. So one of the big takeaways as far as applications based on, you know, markets 
to me, it, it you you can do pretty well on an energy standpoint in a lot of different climates. That's all. That's yeah, what could, I took yeah, that away. To like, you know, your alternate technologies. Yeah. Too. Like what we talked about earlier, you know, with the VAV system. Yeah. So I have to, I have to be the negative Nelly on this. I'm, and I can't I'm wait outside. to follow Mark. Cause yes, no, I'm I, Mark I, on mean, this. I am totally <laughs> on Jim's page because I've seen too much, you know, happy talk for, you know, I hate to just call it that, but listen, this is this is all a laboratory evaluation. Mm -hmm. This is not based on, you know, the real world technologies and constraints of economics, um, regional energy prices, all that stuff. So I, I'm just, I, I am, I'm sorry, very reluctant to adopt this as factual or biblical in any sense. Mm -hmm. And, and this one, it goes back to what I was saying earlier. If I just scroll yeah. down to like some of the heating and cooling COPs they used, they used a yep. DX, a unitary DX air conditioning unit um, with a 3.39 cooling COP and a 0.8 heating COP. So an 80%, mm -hmm. you know, bare bones efficiency. Which is a standard. Unit, yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah. And then for the VRF system, they gave it a, a 3.23 cooling and a 3.2 heating COP. Now I don't, maybe it's somewhere in here. I didn't like, I, I breezed through the whole thing. So yeah. And, and I, I didn't spend it, a whole bunch of time, you know, digging into this either. I just, in so my research found it. If you're using this in a five, a, you are spending almost no time at a three, two and heating. Like it's, yeah. you're going to be, if, if, you know, once it's below freezing, you're starting to approach two. And then when it gets really cold, you know, you start approaching zero, mm -hmm, you're right. probably up below two, mm -hmm. you know, you're starting to approach one at that point, depending on the system or if you're in pure auxiliary heat, um, you know, so, and then again, the need in the heat recovery, are you, is it actually set up? Like, yes, this is like a research paper, but in the real world, are you actually, how often are you able to actually do that? Mm -hmm. um, and are you able to, because again, I've seen these systems where, yeah, you, you could only exchange heat between the whole West exposure of the building. Like, what good is that? But yeah, I just found a lot of annoying things in this paper. I mean, yeah. The big one is every single one of these things I see is the scroll compressor DX rooftop with electric reheat versus yeah. inverter VRF. It's just, all right, put this against either a high efficiency inverter type rooftop unit or a chilled water system and let me know how that goes for you. Yeah. And it, that's probably where you kind of hit that capacity limitation too, though. Like, um, you know, in your, in your 20 ton commercial location, yeah, you're not going to do a chilled water loop with yep. hot water. But you reheat, might have a you know, water source heat pump. You get yeah. a little bit of the wet bulb through yep. if you have an evaporative tower. Yep. Um, the one thing we never talked about was water cooled VRF. Oh, I was going to ask about that. So, I haven't seen one in practice, so I, I guess I look at that as uh, really, uh, I mean, the best combination of all technologies, you know, doing either a ground loop or a uh, pond loop or whatever yep. it is, you know. So that's something, Mark, I as well, I've never personally designed one. I may have a potential one coming up in a, a high-rise residential apartment application where you know, that kind of uh, crosses off some of the negatives. Now you have, like, if you put a water-cooled unit at each floor, now I, I drastically lower the refrigerate, refrigerant in the system. You know, I have a, I have heat exchange between the water loops. Now I do get, in a way, full heat recovery everywhere. I do get, if I have a tower on the system, I do get that wet bulb effect versus you know dry bulb cooling and then if i have a wherever my heat source is whether it's ground source or even if i throw in a condensing boiler you know i'm not i don't have extremely low cops of heating when it's really cold outside so mm. the, the water source yet yeah, you know you're adding a little bit of complexity to the system that's already got some complexity to it but um there are some situations where i think that could really shine and be maybe theoretically one of the more efficient systems 
in some built types of buildings you can put in, especially when you combine it with like a geothermal ground loop. It's a pretty interesting setup, but I just don't have the experience to really speak more on that. Clayton, before we go too farther, uh, do you think it'd be good to point out the article we were kind of talking about? Yeah, sure. So I, I, I just did some, you know, internet searching on efficiencies of uh, VRF systems compared to other technologies. And this was an article. Well, I can open it back up in front of me. Well, it's um, a five-year-old article. So five-year-old article. That, yep. Right? It oh yeah, 2017. ScienceDirect. Yep, ScienceDirect.com. It's just an evaluation of energy savings potential of variable refrigerant flow from variable air volume (VAV) in the U.S. climate locations. So, um, you know, they just broke it out to uh, all the different climate locations in the U.S. and compared uh, VRF system annual or average efficiency to a VAV system, which I know like in our conversation is kind of the standard comparison, right? Or whatever you want to call it to, you could do a VRF or you can do a VAV system, which one's better. And a lot of people have that question and say, you know, one's more efficient than the other. And Jim, you did a great job of Enmark breaking down this to saying, well, the validity of it is not, take, don't take the, the charts, you, the fancy charts you see at face value, because if you really look into what they're comparing COP wise to, you know, VAV. Eh, yeah. What does it really tell us? Maybe not so much, but. Um, oh, we should read everything with that type of eye, you know? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, what I took away of it and it, to me is it they can compete, you know, it's not like there's one that's way off in left field compared to the other. Well, I think it's always beneficial that, yeah. you know, like Jim said, you do a fair comparison. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't compare your diesel Jetta to a, you know, a yeah. JM sixteen hundred and say, well, one gets fifty miles to a gallon, yeah, yeah, one yeah. gets fourteen. That's a yeah, it's an unfair, unrealistic yeah. comparison of totally different technologies. Like I said, my my takeaway of it just with with the advancements in VRF, it appears that you can use it in a, a bright or a broad range of climates. And uh, not take too much of a hit on the energy standpoint, which maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, and I, and I would say, and I've been hammering. My biggest point with VRF is I think it is a great technology when properly implemented. I don't think it's a one solution fits all. Right. Nope. I think it's oversold, um, which is why I kind of push back a lot on some of the claims that the manufacturers make. Um, but in its in its role, and I always mention the sweet spot, it typically does better at zoning and comfort and efficiency at those smaller, like commercial implementations. Um, because, you know, I think, Clayton, you said it earlier, I'm not going to have a chilled water system available in a 10 ton, yeah, you know, like commercial building. So it, it definitely does have its benefits. I just, I see a lot of installations where there's probably better solutions out there, or maybe it was you know, they had a really good salesman that <laughs> sold the yeah. owner and the engineer. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just a, it's a great option when it's used correctly. I just, you gotta be just like with everything else, you know, I would just be aware of some of its limitations. That's all. Yep. Well, and like we covered in some of those cons where like you get, you take it at faith. Oh, it's just a, you, you, there's your outdoor unit and your indoor unit and some refrigerant pipe in between. It's not, that's not the case. You know, you have to still provide ventilation air and you still have Correct. to manage the condensate, which I don't want to say is an afterthought, but it's when people really do try to think about, oh, VRF has its advantages. There's, you're still ducting to, to something in there. You know, your people are in the ceiling. It's still an invasive installation. It's not like it's just uh, FM sending your cooling to, or heating to it, you know? Mm, so, yep. um, yeah. And then, you know, uh, Nick, you touched this earlier in the podcast and I think it's a good time to touch it now though, is legislation's pushing for a lot of electrified solutions, right? So does VRF kind of have an opportunity to take over the market share in, in some of these applications where you can still say, ah, maybe I'm better off doing, um, a VAV system 
or is that not really something to consider yet? Well, I think you probably have two external forces here when it comes to that, whether it's uh, incentives, and I don't know if there are incentives out there for VRF in any way, uh, but then the other ones that the legislation that's kind of making other alternatives not even viable for customers. Right, right. Like, I mean, in 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 our great state here, Jim, is that does that change anything, or is this just and you're potential to the natural gas bans on new construction? That's right. Of- yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I'm already seeing oh, it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm already seeing it to where you know there's definitely jurisdictions in New York State and owner, you know, pe- owners that are aware of where the regulatory winds are blowing to where they are pushing for all electric right. um, solutions, you know, or they're, or they're forced to already. There's already some local jurisdictions in New York state yep. that won't allow any more, you know, natural gas connections and other owners that maybe, you know, they're nearby and they see what's going on and they just want to, in a way, try to future proof themselves from other, you know, regulations coming down the road to their jurisdiction but yeah i've already seen it you know in vrf obviously being an all electric solution um is you know definitely one of the uh, options for that scenario well just, uh, jim i have to ask a question yep uh you reside in rochester have any of your customers notified you that rg e has been asking for voluntary curtailments that would be Rochester Gas and Electric, the local utility up there. That would be correct. I'm sorry, say that again, Mark. Oh, we're going to open up Pandora's box now, though. I like where well, this I, is going. I like <laughs> opening Pandora's box. That's I'm, I'm make a living like that. Yeah. So have any of your customers asked or, or indicated to you, Jim, that our genie is asking for voluntary cur- curtailments or reductions? Turn no, off I, your lights. I have not. Oh, yeah. That's, it's out there, for and it's real. Oh, boy. So uh, that said, what would be the impetus for people to say go all electric when we already can't supply the connected load on peak days? Well, in, in, in relativity of the situation, natural gas wouldn't supplement the need for cooling on the days where they're calling for. I concur. But I, I, I concur mm-hmm. with that. But my, my point is, you know, an, an all electric solution of any kind is perhaps not the best solution yeah and i you know i think you know we're this kind of drifts probably a separate podcast right is just we're talking now we're talking about electrification heating right oh i can't i I can't wait for that podcast (laughs) electrification of everything you know nick was asking you know is this a option when you have electric heat or electric only and obviously yeah it's it's one of the options but yeah if we're going to talk about the philosophy of you know, mandating, you know, electric only heating. And yeah, I think we could definitely have a whole podcast on that. I'm going to drive my electric car to my VRF cooled facility that has solar panels and you guys are going to hate it. Why? problem with that. How do we hate it? <laughs> I don't know. But, what, but, but you're, you know, okay, if it has solar panels, that's great. But, you know, the moon was really big last night, by the way, but I doubt it would power a solar panel. Yeah, you're right. Uh, it's just one of those things that, sure, it, it, in theory, great. Do you have storage capacity for your solar panels? No. The grid, it becomes your storage. And, you know, okay, yeah. we're offsetting some daily uh, consumption, but still need to have dark hour production of electricity i thought clayton had solar panels on his car and just only drove when it was light oh, out yeah that's what i do yeah <laughs> solar roads clayton solar yeah, roads. Yeah. it's coming right <laughs> so do we have any final thoughts on vrf um before we wrap this i know we're getting in the weeds with the whole electric portion of it which i could just continue on for hours but maybe we should make that its own podcast um, any final thoughts on VRF? You know, I, from my takeaways, it's great technology. It has its limitations like any great technology, but if it's supplied in the, the right situation, obviously it does extremely well. well. Um, I, I, I always have to be the curmudgeon. So in my mind, VRF 
if you speak directly to the sales side of the VRF, is always sold as plug and play. It's plug and play. Yeah. Uh, anything sold as plug and play generally is not. Mm-hmm. Definitely a low engineering solution at times, I guess, if you don't evaluate cool. it correctly. Yeah. Like just slap it in and let it do its thing and yeah, and it'll work, but it won't be the most efficient or whatever, you know, I don't know. Is that what you're saying? It may not even do what you expect. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny, you know, Nick brought that up, you know, the low engineering solution. A lot of the engineering is kind of outsourced to the manufacturer at that point. Yeah. You know, we, we specify, the consultant will specify the performance requirements and, you know, the the space loads and ventilation rates, but you know, the, the manufacturer, since it is essentially a one big manufacturer proprietary system now, they have to, you're, you're relying on them to design the refrigerant layout and the controls and, and all the nitty gritty. It's just the, the, the way it is with VRF. Hey, Jim, did you mean to say there's like pretty much one manufacturer supplying this or is that no, you're no, no. tied to that manufacturer you choose for all components of that system now, there's many manufacturers supplying it it's just yeah you're just married to that manufacturer now the one you pick and the contractor for maintenance um you know you're you're stuck with them so it better be a a happy marriage yeah <laughs> 20 year commitment there at least yeah. well that's interesting divorces get ugly <laughs> well it does contrast the I don't know, some of the, the selling features of it, I guess, as far as like the plug and play, modular, uh, right, ease, all that kind of stuff. But when you do consider like anything, you know, what, what happens down the road, you know, a year, three years, five years, whatever. Uh, so on the refrigerant side, so we're all good now, 410A, that's like no, no problems. I mean, except the human health, but. There's no big push like there was years ago to get rid of, you know, hydrofluorocarbons and all that, right? So oh, that, that's, is that all settled science now? I don't think so. I think okay. that's... I didn't think so either. No, that's the next one on the way out. Okay. Yeah, there's some... Actually, I, the, the, the 2023 regulations, I think we Could be wrong. Caught me off guard, Nick, but I'm, that's on my radar. I have to... Because I know that's coming up. Um but because the next push is for the A2L, the lightly flammable, um, very low global warming potential refrigerants, that, that's the next push. So I'd say the next phase of, huh. you know, phasing out refrigerants, I believe our 410A is in the crosshairs. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And that could be sometime down the road, but that would obviously change everything about these systems. You know, I know like, people that had residential heat pumps and I had to replace them. You know, a lot of times they're thinking, Hey, my copper is still good. I just need new unit, but you can't do that. That goes away. It's pretty much all new systems because of the refrigerant changes. So I was just curious about that. And then my other question, we, I did read a lot about, Hey, the savings could be this, you know, and I get it, but I didn't really come across anything about price premiums necessarily. And maybe that's not that important, but I guess if, you, if you're going to tout, you know, you can save 30 to 50%, but it's going to cost you four to 500% more. Yeah. Uh, marginal cost divided by marginal benefit, present value of both. Yeah. Somebody said that earlier in this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, the quick Google search totally right. <laughs> shows, uh, R5454B coming in in 2023. Yeah, R54B is it R33? Like, these are the A2Ls, yeah. which oh. means it's a it's a lightly flammable. Yep. Uh, huh. Yeah, and I I got to quickly Google search this because I want to. Yeah. I could have swore R410A is not going to be allowed in new equipment next year in 2023. Wow. Whoa, that came yeah. quick. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Yep. That seems like a big consideration because refrigerant, oh, no matter what, is not cheap in itself, you know? Yeah. Yep. Well, I think, you know, but it's not, I believe it's still going to be available for servicing. Um, I just, sure. I, I, you know, I don't think 
yeah, you're not allowed to manufacture with it anymore starting in 2023. And from what I'm hearing, I don't know if you guys are aware of the crazy lead times in HVAC equipment, but that's one of the yeah. contributing factors, I guess, sure. is in addition to supply chains and COVID and all that stuff, you got to throw in the regulations to where they're no longer they're retooling all, everything and redesigning their systems. That's just HVAC uh, across the board, though. Just right. I mean, just for our listeners, it's not just VRF issues. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which our listeners probably are already aware of the insane lead times with HVAC equipment. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, team, I think this is a pretty good VRF episode. It, yeah. it felt good to be back uh, for our listeners. I know you got some some of our throwback episodes, and we're gonna kind of mix them in with our new episodes. I enjoyed firing up the podcast again, so hopefully our listeners did too. I think this was a very informative podcast. Um, I feel smarter. Yeah, uh, you know we know more about VRF now, and if you if you didn't know a lot about VRF, hopefully after this episode you guys took something away as a listener. So um, yeah, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Nick, Jim, and Mark. And I think with that we're gonna wrap this episode up. What do you guys think? It's been a blast. <laughs> that it has. Talk to you guys. Alrighty. Thank you guys. 